Hello, my name is Samuel George London and welcome to Comics for the Apocalypse. On today's episode, I speak to comic book writer and all-round nice guy Rick Quinn about what comics he would take into a solar storm reset apocalypse. But before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to our sponsor, the Comic Scene Comic Club. Available from just £3 a month, you can get monthly issues of the History of Comics, 1930-2030, to monthly issues of the brand new Shift Comic Anthology, and two Comic Scene specials per year. To find out more and subscribe to the Comic Club, visit comicscene.org. Now, without further ado, on with the show. Hello, Rick Quinn. How's it going? Hey, Sam. Uh, it's going well. How are, how are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm all right, man. I'm all right. Um, although I must say that here in the UK, the weather is absolutely awful. I don't know what it's like on the other side of the pond, but we have had rain for a solid two weeks now. And it's it's becoming rather upsetting. <laughs> How about well, you? I'm, I, I that would be pretty normal for me. Um, I'm originally from uh, the Pacific Northwest, which is is well known right. for its uh, yes. constant rain and gray skies. Um, I I now reside in North Carolina, which weather wise is known for basically it can change every five minutes, so <laughs> it can be nice and sunny out, and then. Uh, a torrential rainstorm and then back to being sunny again all within the same you know hour <laughs> it's a full season day <laughs> yeah so <clears throat> currently it's looking pretty uh kind of grim outside right now uh oh, but no. you know i uh i have no doubt that later today it'll be nice and sunny and and seem nice that's kind of how it's been the last couple days here so yeah nice. at least get a little bit of sunshine in the evening <laughs> yeah nice that'd be good um yeah and hopefully things are clearing up here in the uk over the weekend so fingers crossed we do actually get a summer because it's it's been quite cold <laughs> as well <laughs> anyway uh, enough yeah. about the weather <laughs> yeah yeah, well, but, yeah. Say it. thanks Go for uh, just uh, yeah uh, thanks for having me on oh yeah no it's an absolute pleasure i was gonna say it's it's really great to have you on um because uh it's it's been a long time coming um because you've been working on a on a project with a with a fellow comics for the apocalypse alumni uh, <laughs> martin lebecki um uh, which looks absolutely fantastic um and before we kind of get into what that project is um tell us what you do in the world of comics Sure. Uh, so I, uh, I'm a writer. So for the last couple of years now, I've been writing and self-publishing uh, indie comics, usually uh, kind of more short stories rather than like full um, graphic novels necessarily. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so I, and I've kind of, uh, I try and I've tried to work in uh, many different genres. So I've done like science fiction, um, uh, kind of more fairy tale esque fantasy. Um, one of my last projects that was on Kickstarter was a book called the negatives. That was like a kind of a dark comedy featuring superheroes. And, uh, yeah, so try and, um, you know, do a little bit of everything. And as far as that goes, um, and then kind of my probably my longest standing collaboration is the 
collaboration with uh, Martin, which you kind of mentioned. Um, we formally worked on a project called The Ghost Butterfly. That was a, a short story. And then kind of based on our working you know, partnership uh, with that, uh, we our next project we decided to do is this kind of longer anthology series idea that's called Uncanny Valley, which is, yeah, the project that we're, that we have on Kickstarter now. So yeah. Brilliant. That, and that looks a, fantastic um, by the way. Uh, and no, and just to, just for the listeners, give us a little bit of a flavor of, of what, what's that about? So Uncanny Valley is, like I said, kind of a science fiction anthology series. Um, you know, we kind of compare it just for the ease of like an elevator pitch of saying it's kind of like the Twilight Zone or Black Mirror. I think what those comparisons kind of miss is that our our storytelling style in particular kind of always has this kind of tinge of melancholy to it. Um, uh, whereas, you know, Black Mirror and Twilight Zone are more kind of like about shock endings and um yeah things like that where our hopefully our stories kind of just leave you with a little bit of disquiet and kind of discomfort to kind of sit in, uh, which is a great pitch by the way. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, this comic will bum you out. Um, but I think the different, you know, when I, I think it's, it is a, it's an important distinction, at least in my mind of kind of melancholy versus just straight sad and depressing, because I think the difference is that there, there's also kind of beauty within that feeling and uh hopefully uh, you know that's kind of what we're the feeling that we're trying to impart with some of these stories but uh it, it also has the benefit so with this kickstarter too like it's not just martin and i we've actually we've reached out to some other artists and uh to do more comic stories also essays and some like pinup art and things like that so um looking forward to like i mean this project but then also in the future kind of growing it into a you know a, a space where it's a kind of a ecosystem of artists and writers working on these kinds of stories and it's not just uh, martin and i fantastic um and it's it's got quite a, a front cover um where you've kind of got a um is it an android or is it like a humanoid what's the right term I think it's Android. Uh, I think um, Android, playing a violin yeah. in a dumpster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in a, like, yeah. on a in, a in a dump. Sorry. Yeah, so it's funny because I only recently kind of went back and I was I was going organizing my files on the computer and I found the original like pitch document that I kind of sent to Martin with kind of outlining the idea, and that I mean that was that was the first idea. I just said I don't know why, but I just have this this idea of this android playing a violin i just think would be like a really kind of creepy iconic image and uh it lasted through years of of uh the process and uh went through many revisions and many kind of different iterations of the idea uh to kind of come to that final cover idea but uh yeah i think martin did an amazing job and i mean it's yeah it's it's like a a huge, I mean, it's a huge image just in its, in its own right, but then it, I think it'll be really cool. It's cause it can be a, a wraparound cover, uh, where the second half, the back end half of the illustration kind of reveals kind of the truer nature of, if you just look at the initial cover where you kind of see the, the Android playing the violin in front of the window that has this kind of like pastoral image. 
And then when you go to the back, you kind of see the, the kind of the hidden truth behind it, which I thought was kind of a neat um, and kind of like clever technique. So, but yeah, Rick, um, it's, it's fantastic um, looking project. Uh, but you, you've got about two weeks to go um, with probably at this point when we go, uh, when this episode airs uh, with about 30% to go. Uh, you'll be at about 70%, I'd have thought, by Monday. Um, so uh, all the folks out there that are listening, go check out this project right now. Um, the link is in the show notes, or you can just search for Uncanny Valley on Kickstarter. Um, go check it out and back it. Um, it looks absolutely fantastic, um, and, and I'm looking forward to see, seeing where this uh, this anthology goes. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and, and uh, Martin and I both on you know our various social medias are of course um, posting a lot about it as well. So you can also uh, find the link there. But yeah, thank you. Perfect. And where, and where are you on social media? Sorry, Rick. Uh, so I think on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Rich Quizzle, and then uh, my website is uh, apexquin.com. I did see that, and I assume that's a Aphex Twin reference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. Man. Yeah. When I when I was in high school, my my to just give you an idea of how cool me and my friends were, we spent our weekends um, performing like parodies of artists on Warp Records, which <laughs> is very specific for teenagers in America to be doing, since Warp Records is pre- you know primarily known as like a UK. Yeah. techno label but uh my my alter ego in in that project was apex uh triplet uh you know we have very creative parody names for all these artists but so that that's a long-standing um source of Running inspiration trade. for me yeah that's fantastic no i appreciate that because uh yeah apex twin was something that i was kind of you know i was into at university um or college um yeah so brings back a lot of good memories a good old apex twin (laughs) (laughs) fantastic Uh, now um all of that aside um unfortunately um we've landed in a place where not only are we going through a pandemic right now uh but we've also um just been hit by a solar storm um from the sun um, and what that means for anybody that doesn't know what a solar storm is, is that, um, and this is a real thing, by the way, um, the, the sun kind of uh, radiates electromagnetic storms. And one of those, um, one day will be big enough to wipe out all electronics on the planet. Um, so, you know, when that happens, a load of electronics is just going to gonna wipe out uh, a, a lot of uh, our daily comforts um, along with a lot of other things as well like planes and <laughs> and any electronic systems um, so my question for you Rick is uh, what is your action plan for survival in a solar storm reset apocalypse uh, I mean my action plan I think would be to uh do my best to become proficient at farming as soon as humanly possible. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that uh, I, I actually think that I would uh, 
I, w- I would champion and cheer on this oncoming apocalypse. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, so my, my day job is I work in a, in a fulfillment center for, uh, for a food company. And, uh, one of the videos that we watched recently was about kind of the global supply chain and Mm. it kind of started and, and the video was like, you know, back in the, back in the old days, um, the farmer would farm food and then they would drive it into town and they would sell it. And that was kind of the end of that system. And then it was like, well, now we have, you know, every, every, uh, all the food that you eat is constructed of like 80 different ingredients from, you know, 80 different countries and involves, you know, planes, shipping things, boats, shipping things, um, you know, trucks driving all which every which way across the country. And I was just kind of sitting there watching this, this thinking like we humanity has done such an amazing job to screw up something that is as simple as like food grows in the ground and then you eat it. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like, so any, you know, if, um, if anything were to wipe out, you know, obviously I would miss things like the internet and, um, you know, uh, convenient, you know, I'm, I love conveniences as much as, yeah. as everyone else. But I think that, um, this kind of reset would actually be a good thing for, for our species and our planet. So, I, I, you know, like I said, I, I would, I would, uh, I, I, I've tried gardening in the past and I was really bad at it. So I, I know that I have a long way to go, but I think that, um, you know, while I was out there learning, learning the trade of, of how to, you know, plant vegetables, I, I would be doing it with a smile on my face for sure. Nice. Nice. And so you'd, you'd basically have a bit of a, a small holding or like a small farm, type thing yeah yeah oh man that sounds great yeah dude totally nice (laughs) um and so um on your days whilst you're kind of you know um plowing the fields and (laughs) things like that and Uh you're gonna have to get one of those old school plows like with a with a bull or something oh yeah um, you know an ox and uh yeah whilst you're whilst you're doing that you contemplate um the days when um you know there were there were hundreds of comics because of course now that we don't have digital technology um kind of comic production you know really runs down and it goes to the old school ways of doing things um but you try to remember what what the comic industry used to be like and uh the the first question that you're asked that you ask yourself is what's the first comic you remember enjoying sure so I I interpreted I interpreted this question as not so much like the the literally the first comic that I read or that I, I necessarily enjoy, uh, kind of encountered, but more like the first yeah. comic that I enjoyed in the sense of like you know that turned me into a comic book fan. Great. And my answer is is not a specific issue, but more just kind of an ongoing uh, years long um, event storyline, which was, uh, the clone saga, uh, which was happening in, in, I I think, well, must've been the mid nineties, I think. And Mm -hmm. which was like a multi-year story that was told over the span of, I think at the time there were four main Spider-Man titles 
It's like Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man. <laughs> and I don't even remember what the other one was, but um, I, it was, it's kind of funny because when, you know, at that time I was a kid and the, you know, there wasn't really the internet yet. And I would just, I would go to the comic book store and I knew I liked Spider-Man. So I'd buy the new Spider-Man comics. And it, at that time it wasn't a kind of regular, regularly, uh, occurring event that we would go to the comic book store like every week. It was kind of like every once in a while we would just kind of find ourselves over there for some reason. My dad would take my brother and I out, out to this shop. And so the way that I kind of consumed these comics was very fragmented. And so I, I wasn't reading it in a linear fashion. I wasn't reading it, um, you know, in the correct order or even from the beginning. So my memory of it was very, you know, I would read one issue here, one issue there, and then I would find an issue that came out several months ago. I'd read that and then jump ahead and it was kind of all over the place, but I, you know, at the time I just, um, I love Spider-Man. I love comic books. So I would just devour these, um, these comics. And then, you know, again, being kind of, um, kind of isolated, just like, uh, geographically, there weren't mm. a lot of other kids in the neighborhood I lived in. I also at the time was going to a private school where I also, uh, kind of didn't have a ton of friends there. So I, you know, spending a lot of time on my own reading these comic books. And I was like, man, I love the clone saga. Uh, it, you know, it, the story being told in the Spider-Man comics, which kind of was hilarious, you know, years later finding out that this storyline is reviled and considered to be like <laughs> the nadir of comic book storytelling as a medium, <laughs> you know, people hated it. And I had no idea. I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was great. I loved it. And yeah, I'm not sure if, um, I, 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 I can't, you know, I can't tell what is the chicken and what is the egg in this scenario, but I have always had, uh, I've always loved stories with doppelganger doppelgangers. Yeah. Right. Um, I like a great example is, um, in the prestige where you have Hugh Jackman playing mm -hmm. the, the magician. And then he's also playing the act, the drunken actor who they hire to like, um, take his place. Um, any movie that has a scene or yeah, is based around like an actor playing two parts. Yeah, I, I, double just, impact. I just, yes, I love, I just love that. And I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I would have to assume that the clone saga was my first introduction mm. to the notion of having these multiple versions of the same person. Um, so I think it was pretty influential in, in that case, but yeah, I, I, I um, as far as like getting me into comics, that, that whole storyline was, was, uh, had a huge impact on me. That's awesome, man. And so, um, at that point, um, were you attempting to create any of your own comics? Oh, for sure. Oh man. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So yeah. And, and, <laughs> Tell and, us and more. <laughs> Oh God, this is, this is horribly embarrassing. So I had, so of course my, my comic book was, was based on Spider-Man, but, uh, uh, I had this other friend who was also, was my one other friend who read comic books and knew who Spider-Man was. 
and we both loved to draw and we would like create these different characters of comic books. And one day he showed me a drawing and he was like, check it out. It's um, dark spider. And <laughs> I don't really remember what his like powers were or if he was just kind of like Spider-Man, but like darker. I don't <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> but so then my brilliant idea, I was like, okay, well I'm going to create a character called light spider. Um, oh, which, yeah, which, so I think, so I remember the opening origin story is that a, a spider bites um, the main character's shoulder at the same time as a bolt of lightning hits him. And wow. uh, it imbues him with the power to like shoot beams of light uh, out of his hands. I mean, yeah, it's horrible. Wow. But uh, even that, I mean, yeah, so, awesome, man. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think even there, yeah, you already have like, um, you have the, uh, you know, the, the doubling of the character. So you have the, the dark yeah. and the light. Um, it's very Taoist. I, I was, you know, yeah. I was way ahead of my time. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I still, you know, I mean, I still have a lot of those old comics, but yeah, they're they're really bad. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and so obviously that was your first foray into creating comics, but but when did you think to to take it to the next level and kind of, you know, get it self-published and all that jazz? Um, that kind of came from, so, I mean, I always loved comic books and kind of out of comic books, I, I started getting really into movies and, and filmmaking. So by the time I was in high school, I was really into, um, screenwriting and, and doing a lot of like creating a lot of short films and video projects with my friends. And so mm -hmm. I kind of pursued that for a while and eventually just because of kind of the nature of filmmaking and, and how, you know, it's, um, you kind of need a lot of people to kind of realize those projects and it can be, it can cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always had an inclination towards more kind of like genre storytelling. Like I always, I grew up loving science fiction. And so I was always kind of felt like I was being held back because I, I had these ideas, but I was like, well, I could never do that as a movie. Um, and so I, I, I remember, um, taking a trip to the Oregon coast and, and kind of was on a hike and just thinking to myself, like, if I could write any, anything and not worry about budget and not worry about, um, any of the practical concerns, what would I do? And I started coming up with this idea for what eventually became this fantasy comic book, which it has never, I, I has never been published and I, I don't intend necessarily on publishing it, but it was kind of my first attempt at, at seriously writing like a comic book script. And once I kind of realized that notion of like, well, I mean, obviously comics aren't cheap either, but, um, that it was much more attainable. Um, the mm -hmm. idea of realizing kind of these like images that I had in my head and that was kind of how I got, um, started, uh, down the path of like writing creatively a lot towards um, comic books. Nice. Um, and what was your first project? Sorry. The first comics project that I ever did was, it was actually a short that I did with this artist named Dana uh, Obera. And the short was called tour guide. And that was, I think eight page, like a short eight page comic. And then we, uh, off of that, we worked on a 
a longer story that was 20 some odd pages uh, called Saltwater, which was kind of like my first proper like mm. uh, comic book story um, where, because the other one was, was almost kind of like an experiment and, and very much like a kind of proof of concept, I guess, of like, let's see if we work together. Well, um, let's see if we both, you know, I was just starting out as writing. He, I kind of found him like he was doing like fan art and, and posting a lot of things online, but he hadn't quite done um, like a, a, you know, like proper comics yet. So once we kind of got through that initial trial phase, then Saltwater was kind of the first one where we, uh, you know, put out like a legit, like beginning, middle end story. Yeah. Nice man. And um, what, um, what was that about? Sorry. Saltwater. So saltwater was, uh, it was, it was kind of a science fiction action adventure story that was about this young woman that lives in this, on this planet where the society is, is, uh, you know, kind of divided between the rich and the poor and the poor live literally in an underwater city and the rich live above the water. And uh, it was very much inspired by The Abyss, the James Cameron film, The Abyss. And then also mm-hmm. Dana had mentioned like that he wanted to do something in the vein of like Star Wars, like again, like kind of an action adventure sci-fi. And, and what always compelled me about Star Wars that, you know, I think often gets missed is that it's very much like a kind of parable about Vietnam. And George Lucas had originally before he started working on Star Wars was originally slated to do Apocalypse Now. That was kind of the project that he was um, focusing on for years. And then Francis Ford Coppola kind of took that over and he was like, okay, well, I guess now I'll go work on my space opera, but then worked a lot of those themes and ideas and, and kind of influence of, of, you know, living through that era into Star Wars. So you have the, the plucky rebellion against the evil empire. It's like, you know, kind of ironic that it became this global, you know, huge success and yeah. people, you know, and it's like, uh, and the whole premise is basically like, you know, the, the Viet Cong versus the American Imperial intruders, uh, which I, I love the subver- subversiveness of that. So <laughs> anyway, that, that, yeah, that was kind of the, the genesis of that. Oh, that's great! That's fantastic. And then, obviously, yeah, uh, we we uh, come up today with with Uncanny Valley, um, and uh, for because I hadn't realised this actually um, that un- Uncanny Valley is it, it's actually a phrase used, isn't it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For anybody that doesn't know, because I didn't know that until I kind of looked it up. Um, what does it mean, Uncanny Valley? So, Uncanny Valley is essentially kind of a, a term that's used for when kind of a, a you you hear it used a lot in like computer graphic simulations or mm-hmm. like if you you're watching a movie in the computer graphics you'll say like a face of somebody entered the uncanny valley which essentially means kind of this space between um something looking in uh looking completely unrecognizable and something looking um you know, exactly like a human face, there's this middle space where like it suddenly just takes this weird turn where it's like bizarre what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of, I, I thought it was an appropriate title because I, I really enjoy that kind of liminal space between 
you know, complete abstraction and uh, very precise preciseness. You have, I, I, I kind of prefer that, that kind of ambiguous middle area, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've always, I've, and I've always, yeah, liked that term and, and, and yeah, thought it would, thought it'd be a good no, title for apt. our, for our world. A hundred percent. No, very apt. And uh, no, that's great. Fantastic. Uh, now, um, going back to plowing the fields, Rick, um, uh-huh. you, the next question that you ask yourself is what's the funniest comic that you've read? So funniest comic I've read, I would say is the series called giant days. Um, I, you know, there aren't actually a lot of comics that, you know, I guess make me laugh out loud, mm-hmm. uh, on, on a regular basis. I, I, I'm not sure exactly why it is, although, you know, comic books, obviously I think kind of inherently as a medium, maybe kind of skewed towards action adventure, um, kind of set pieces mm-hmm. and they don't really favor kind of that, like, intimate one-on-one dialogue quite as much or at least i think it actually does do that very well but it's a lot harder and so maybe it's just rarer Mm -hmm. to kind of come across that but uh the comic series giant days is hilarious and a lot of i mean the the humor comes from both sides of the equation so it's the writing is very funny and the and the characters are very relatable uh the main character uh her, who's, her name is Susan. They're in the very, I think it's in the first issue. It's at least in the first trade there, there's a scene where she's kind of like collapsed on her bed in her pajamas. And she just looks like a wreck of a human being. <laughs> and I remember just seeing that and being like, Oh I, yeah, I'm going to love this because it was, yeah. I just found it just so <laughs> instantly <laughs> relatable. Um, <laughs> and the, but then also the artwork is, incredibly expressive incredibly cartoony in the in the kind mm-hmm. of classic sense of like you know exaggeration for the for the effect of of comedy and uh it's and it's 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 like it's very charming the characters are are yeah you just you kind of like fall in love with the characters and yeah, I, I mean, I, I would highly recommend it. I, I actually haven't finished the entire series because it, it, I think it uh, went on for uh, many, many years. But I, I have read yeah. probably like almost three fourths of, of the whole thing. And yeah, I, yes. I really enjoy that series. That's fantastic. Um, and it's a, it's obviously it's a, it's kind of a, it's a UK based um, comic of people at university. Yeah, um, yeah, and I'm just wondering, out of curiosity, how how did you come across it? I think I came across it just from uh, kind of following people in the comic sphere on social media and seeing mm-hmm. other people kind of talk about, just kind of raving about it. Um, you just see people like you know falling over themselves to praise this book, and mm-hmm. I remember just you know seeing some images from it, and I was like, oh, that looks like it could be fun, and. Um, I, I think it helped. I think the first trade is only like ten ten dollars, um, yeah. and so you know, perfect for like kind of an impulse buy. Um, mm, and uh, yeah, and I, I, it's not kind of normally the the kind of comic that I I would 
typically be like drawn to or, or uh, without kind of like, yeah, an incentive or a recommendation from somebody else. But I'm really glad that I did because now I, now it's one that uh, one of my like kind of go-to recommendations for people, um, especially if they're unfamiliar with comics or, um, mm-hmm. you know, are kind of looking for a way in. I, th- I think it's a great like um, introduction uh, to the medium as well. Nice. Um, and now uh, we're going to change gears a little bit. Uh, and the next question that comes up in your head is what's the saddest comic that you've read? Sure. So this one was uh, a little more difficult for me than than the last one, just because I had a lot more options to, to choose from. <laughs> yeah. um, but I actually, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I ended up, um, I ended up going with a incredibly obscure comic uh that i I was kind of surprised that i think you can actually it's in its entirety online which is pretty cool but so it's it's a comic that i bought um at the rose city comic-con in portland in maybe like 2013 2014 uh somewhere around there it's called milk and moo by this artist named yumi sakagawa and the she is kind of now i I think she's kind of found a a particular niche audience on like instagram and uh kind of various other outlets with she does a lot of comics about like meditation and kind of like self-care practices Um, I know she has a book about like a guide to meditation. That's pretty good. But, um, this comic, yeah. So I, I bought it just from like a random vendor that was at this convention. She wasn't there, but it was this person's booth. They were selling kind of like, um, books from a multitude of artists. I think that they were all based out of the same studio in like San Francisco. I, I could be wrong in that, but that's kind of my memory of it. But so this comic, uh, milk and moo, it's, 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 um, you know, the published version is kind of pamphlet sized and it's black and white and it's a very simple kind of story. It's two cats, which is what probably what compelled me to buy it in the first place. I I love cats and I uh, (laughs) had two cats at the time. And uh, the, the story is, is pretty simple. It's um, these two cats who hang out all the time are confronted in, in the forest by this kind of God, like creature that's like this floating mass of eyeballs and uh the this this god creature tells the cats like i need you to watch the universe for me so that i can basically kind of like retire (laughs) (laughs) so so the 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 eyeball god thing goes away and milk and moo these two cats are left to uh watch the universe and then one of the cats goes away and the other cat who stays behind realizes that if they look away from the universe, like the universe will stop to exist. And um, I don't know what it is about it, but it it legitimately had a very profound effect on me when I read it. It, it like moved me quite a bit, especially the last page has like a specific panel that is just the the framing of it and kind of the the tenor of it. It's there's it's silent. There's no words. Um, it just like, yeah, it just really hit me. And, um, it, the comic is interesting because it's, it's very kind of a lot of the, the imagery in it is very abstract and it's largely a silent 
book as well. So it's, it's very, um, you know, driven by the images in it. And I don't know something about it. It just, yeah, it just puts you, it definitely has a, a mood of its own. And, um, yeah. So it, when I, when I saw this question, I was kind of like the first thing that I thought of and I hadn't read it in years, but I just remember the impact that it had on me when I, when I did read it. And, um, and I reread it, uh, in preparation for this and it had this and, and it still had the same, same impact. So. That's amazing. It is. It's funny, isn't it? The, the thing that you tend to remember from a, from a comic book or just a story at large is it's really the feeling, isn't it? And sure. that feeling instantly came back to you, even though, you know, you can't necessarily remember the full details and things, but you just remember that feeling. That oh yeah. Well, I, well, and that was one of like, I, I, one of the things I was uh, kind of nervous about the, this like podcast is that I, yeah, I'm like, I, 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 I don't know if I could recount the plots of, most of my favorite comic books. I, I, cause I just don't. And it's kind of funny as, as somebody who writes comic books, it's like plot in the story are kind of the least of my concerns. Um, I, yeah, I I think kind of like to your point, like I, I tend to remember the, the feeling or the mood that was evoked as -hmm. well as like just the, the images themselves. And I, I mean, I think comics kind of work best. Well, I guess they work best when, the words and the pictures are working in tandem, but I kind of, I, I really like just letting the pictures tell the story themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, um, a story that I, I, I like to tell is like, I, I, so the comic that Martin and I worked on, um, the ghost butterfly, when I, I sent the PDF to my mom and she wrote me back and she said, did you send me the copy that doesn't have the words? <laughs> because, <Yeah. laughs> because, it was such a silent comic and I, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, not just her, like it's it kind of, I've had other people who have been like, been pointed out that like part of my style tends to be like favoring the, letting the images tell the story rather than being too mm-hmm. overly verbose with the the words. But um, yeah, yeah, it is, it, it is That's interesting great. how th- those are the things that kind of stand out, stand out to you. Yeah, no, the feelings definitely, and uh, yeah, I I try to do that as much as I can in terms of you know show show don't tell necessarily, and you know you should be able to tell a tell a story with the, like a comic book story with mainly the images, and then you know the dialogue is kind of the details I guess um, of that, but you should be able to tell what's kind of going on on the page, like straight off the bat. Yeah, sure. Well, and I think that's just totally a lost art as well. And I I mean, I, I relate it to film as well. I think, um, you know, again, like star Wars, just because we were just talking about it is a great example of a movie. If you removed all the dialogue and kept the, the John Williams score and Mm. the movie, like you could completely understand everything you need to know. Um, just from the, the, the image and, and, and the the body language and yeah, the clarity of the storytelling, the visual storytelling is, you know, kind of, like I said, kind of a lost art and, and, uh, something that I, I, I try and focus on, try and get, get better at as I go. Nice man. And we're going to bring it back together. (laughs) hundred percent. Exactly. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, now, uh, next question 
that crops up whilst you're on the plow is uh, what's the scariest comic that you've read? Well, and this talk about talk about um, creating a, a feeling or a mood or an impression. Um, I don't read a lot of, I guess, comics that would be classified as horror, and I, I don't actually mm. watch a lot of horror movies. It's it's not necessarily my favorite genre. Um, I, I tend to pref- when it's done incredibly well, though, um, I love that and like with so like in film like the shining I, I love the shining um i you know uh can watch it at any time likewise in comics i mean as somebody that doesn't like horror as a genre i typically when pressed like what's your favorite graphic novel of all time i usually end up saying from hell by alan moore and eddie campbell mm-hmm. uh which i don't know if it's you know, it's not technically, I think what people associate is like the horror genre, but I mean, it is bone chilling. It's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's again, and I I think, I mean, obviously this is a biased perspective coming from the writer, but I think, I think that what, what can easily be missed is that when the comic, when a comic book story is told and purely in image, in images, um, that the writer can um, and probably should have an impact on how that plays out and have input and ideas towards that kind of storytelling. And so like a perfect example is the, the chapter in from hell where it basically is, um, you know, depicting one of the murders of, of Jack the Ripper. And I'm, I, I actually don't have a copy of it uh, nearby because I I'm, in the process of moving, but, um, I, my memory of it is that there's no words in that entire chapter. And it's just this like, yeah, chilling depiction of, of this kind of murder. But you know, you know, because you know who Alan Moore is and, and how he writes and, and his just general approach to things that every single one of those silent panels probably had more words dedicated to it than some other people's entire scripts. (laughs) And so, um, you know, that's again, to me, that's kind of the, 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 well, the secret to good comics, but also like, you know, collaborate, you know, one of the, the funnest aspects of comic books, one of the most attractive uh, parts of making comics is the collaborative effort and being, you know, someone like myself, who I am a writer, but most of my story ideas and the way that I think is very visual. And I have kind of these iconic to me, like images that I kind of almost start with that and then build a story and characters around these images. And so, you know, from hell to me is a great example of, of a writer and an artist just perfectly in sync. Um, And, you know, uh, that book had Alan Moore reach out to Dave Gibbons would probably be um, unreadable. And Dave Gibbons is, you know, an amazing draftsman, an amazing artist, but nobody could have told that story like Eddie Campbell with that. And his mm-hmm. style is just so perfectly suited to the subject matter, to the themes that just kind of like, you know, ink blot messy. I mean, it looks almost like if somebody was, finger painting in the blood of the victims exactly uh, it's like jack the, the ripper kind of actually drew it himself <laughs> yeah. not that eddie campbell is a serial killer 
But no, no, I don't want to. Yeah, we, I don't want to. Um, you know, uh, go down that road. Serial killer, but yeah, right. but yeah, no. I mean, it, it's it's just a perfect um, the perfect marriage of of kind of theme and content and yeah, two creators just like kind of perfectly in sync. That's amazing. No, that's a perfect choice. Um, now, um, moving on to my favorite question, and that is, what is your favorite cover? Yeah, no, this, yeah, this one was probably the one that I spent the longest on trying to decide, um, because yeah. I, I am a, I am a huge fan of, of a good cover. Um, so with, with most of these, I tried to kind of avoid, you know, maybe a more obvious answer, not, not to be, uh, purposefully obtuse, but more just so, you know, it's like, it's not very revelatory for me to come on and be like, Watchmen is meaningful. It's like, everyone knows that. Um, yeah. so trying, trying to, trying to highlight some, some of these ones that are maybe more specific to myself, but I basically could not avoid, um, answering, uh, this question with a cover by Dave McKean from specifically mm-hmm. from Sandman. I mean, this is kind of undeniable that they're, you know, to me that they're the best covers that comics have ever had. And, um, what kind of took the longest was picking which one because they're mm. all really good. And I ended up eventually going with the cover for um, one of the issues from the, the Sandman overture series that they did where they kind of came back to Sandman like 20 years later and, and did basically kind of like the prologue or prequel series to, to the original series. And um the main reason why I picked it though, so it's, it's issue number five of the Sandman Overture. And the main reason I picked it was because when Martin and I were, were um, uh, you know, over the last few months have been kind of designing uh, assets for the, the Uncanny Valley Kickstarter and also uh, design, you know, working on the design for the actual book itself one of the things that we were obviously spending a lot of time on is the the cover image and my one piece of design uh, ethos that I, I was like completely adamant about was um, I really wanted to break the title in half and have, Mm. have the, the, the uncanny uh, part on the right side of the, of the page and the Valley on the left side of the page and have it broken so that, for two reasons. One, the, the, the va- liter- creating a literally a literal Valley between the two mm-hmm. and then kind of the uncanny notion of like, it's just, it's just off from what you're used to seeing. So it's, it's, it's in reverse and it's broken in half. And I, you know, I was, I thought like, no matter what we do, we, we have to do that. This is, um this is a brilliant design choice that no one else has ever done. And, you know, uh, it's really going to make, make a standout. And then I was going through, I was like, okay, Dave McKean, like what are some of his best covers? And I scroll through and I see this cover and what has he done, but he's taken the Sandman Overture logo, <laughs> broken it in half and done exactly what I thought that was my innovation. He yeah. basically did it before me, of course, and probably <laughs> planted a, a seed subliminally in my mind. Um, so I felt like uh, it was, it would be a fitting tribute to to him to uh acknowledge that you know he uh 
he influenced that that design decision making. But it's also just, I mean, his entire process is is so unique, and and um, you know, the reason why he's so singular is because he's you know his process is unlike anyone else's, and you know his combination of photography and painting and digital manipulation. Um, if, if there are people out there who haven't seen it, you can find online his, the photos of his, his original salmon covers where it's, it's literally like a, um, things called a diorama where it's like, it's a, it's a little like set that he builds where it's like a bookcase with like the painting of Morpheus. And then the objects that you see on those covers, they're all like real objects. And it's, it's a photograph that combines all of, all of them and kind of flattens them into one image. And then later he basically takes that process and then starts adding, you know, digital manipulation with Photoshop and things like that. And so I think this cover specifically, the, the, it's kind of this image of Morpheus with his arms out. It almost looks like he's kind of conducting, which is appropriate for the, the overture um, mm. title, but then he's, he's standing on these, this like um, kind of this weird looking tree, which is like a, I think photo a photograph of like tree roots that he's kind of digitally tied together. And then he's set across this like wash of yellow kind of yellow paint, but then there's like bits and scraps and pieces of um, like uh, bark and dirt and twigs and things like that, that are paint, you know, placed on the canvas and then kind of painted over. I just think it's, it's just so cool and, and very creative. And, you know, I, when I think of, when I think of Sandman, I, I think of Dave McKean's covers but more mm-hmm. than anything, especially for a book that, you know, had multiple artists, um, you know, across its its tenure, you know, besides the fact that Neil Gaiman is is kind of a, is there to write all the issues. The other component that kind of ties everything together is the kind of the visual sensibility of, of Dave McKean. So I, I think that he's, uh, he's unparalleled as the, uh, the cover cover creator definitely and uh, yeah i highly recommend um folks to go check that out the sandman overture number five um cover if you just google that then it will come up it's uh um got a lot of texture to it and a lot of depth yeah that's a great definitely. way of putting it yeah um you can really see that i'd, I'd love to see the original um <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that I think um, I think that part of part of the that whole the overture series, part of his his thought process. I think it says it in the in the graphic novel or in the in the trade paperback that he he wanted to exhibit you know the work, be able to exhibit it. So that kind of why he focused on having like a physical mm-hmm. painting that he could work off. Yeah. No, that's fantastic, and hopefully, yeah, um, that's going to be exhibited somewhere <laughs> again someday um yeah that'd be fantastic to see brilliant uh now uh moving on to another of my favorite questions and that is what's the most meaningful comic to you so for this one i picked uh, a, a book called the last musketeer by a cartoonist named just goes by the name jason mm-hmm. uh I believe he's from norway and this one probably more than any other book on here I could have I could have selected as the funniest comic I uh, could have selected as the saddest comic <laughs> could have selected <laughs> as the underrated comic comic I would recommend to a friend I mean 
Jason is one of my all-time favorite comic book creators. And The Last Musketeer, I mean, if you haven't read any books by Jason, I would definitely couldn't recommend him highly enough. He's incredibly funny uh, and kind of so hard to describe. I mean, he's very much kind of his own his own world. Um, and he has kind of a very regimented style for the most part. Most of his comics, uh, especially now are kind of like four, every page is four panels and he very rarely kind of breaks out of that, that aesthetic. He's very inspired by like, uh, genre, um, as far as like, well, silent films is a huge influence, but also just like, you know, fifties sci-fi. Um, he, he works in a lot of random, uh, points of inspiration and in the way that he mixes them together is great. So last Musketeer is kind of a, a take on the Alexander Dumas, the three Musketeers. But what if uh, there was also an alien invasion that was straight out of like flash Gordon. Brilliant. And um, the reason though, that I picked it as most meaningful is because, so it's, it's published by uh Fantagraphics comics, which is actually, they're based out of uh this place called Georgetown, which is uh, slightly outside of Seattle, where I, I think I mentioned that I'm uh, yes. originally yeah. from. And so like I would go like I uh, they had a signing with Jason actually at, at their storefront that I went to and and I actually got to meet him. But um, to me, it's 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 very indicative of like the time in my life where I was kind of like I mentioned earlier. um deciding like, okay, I want to write comic books and getting really into both fan, the books published by Fanagraphics and then also um, drawn in quarterly, which they're very kind of similar sensibilities. So um, Jason was one, the comic artist, Seth, who is a Canadian artist and illustrator was another like huge, huge inspiration for me at the time. Um, but then you also had like Adrian Tomin, uh, Chris Ware, uh, a lot of, the, you know, just, um, artists of kind of of that era and like Dan Klaus was a little bit kind of before that, but uh, you know, usually kind of included in that group, but um, it was just a very um, kind of profound time for me and a lot like a, a time of a lot of growth, um, both just like personally and then also just artistically and um, just kind of being endlessly amazed at like, wow, like all these comics that have existed and, uh, you know, I have no, I've had no idea and, and, uh, getting to in like, um, you know, the comics journal, I was starting to, to buy that and I would read interviews with people in that and, and love and rockets, which, uh, I think, um, Fanagraphics also published, uh, some of those collections, but, uh, yeah, so, so meaningful to me, just, it, it's very, um, kind of nostalgic book for me in, in terms of it, it, it evokes a, a period in my life that, uh, like I said, involved a lot of growth and just like kind of a, uh, a fondness for. That's beautiful, man. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, it's great to have that kind of anchor, isn't it in your life and you can kind of look back at it and, you know, reminisce on such good memories. And things. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think I had recently, I originally from a, a area called Tacoma, which is a smaller city that's outside of Seattle. I think I'd recently moved to Seattle for the first time. So, you know, living in a big, bigger city and 
you know, becoming more of an adult, uh, and, and all of that. So, yeah. Nice man. That's fantastic. Uh, now, uh, moving on to our next question and that is what's the most underrated comic. So most underrated comic, uh, is a comic that I kind of discovered within the last few years called ancestor. Um, it's by a, a writing. Well, I think it's a writer and artist who, uh, I believe have worked together a few times. Matt Sheehan is the writer and Malachi Ward. who's the artist who I, I'm particularly a fan of the artist. He also had another anthology book. I think it was called from now on that I was a, a pretty big fan of. Um, and this one was one that I, so I was actually visiting home. I was in Tacoma, Washington, and I went to a local comic book store that I, uh, that had like opened since I had moved away. And I was like, Oh, I'll go check it out. And I saw this book on the stand and I was like, Oh, that looks cool. I'll pick that up. And I went to go check out and, and the guy at the register just like points behind me and I'm like, okay. And I look behind me and he has the original artwork from the cover like framed. Nice. And I was like, I guess that he likes this one. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, so I felt like I had made a good choice and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, yeah, I'm kind of baffled that it didn't kind of get more attention when it came out. I, but it's also, it's, it's almost like tailor made for me in a lot of ways. It's very, um, it's, it's kind of, it has vibes of like 2001, a space odyssey kind of mixed with like annihilation. It's, it's, it's very kind of cerebral sci-fi that's, um, kind of has like a, sinister kind of undercurrent to it um and by the end of it it's very abstract very trippy um and i love that it uh it very much kind of leaves the ending up to your own interpretation um nothing in it is really like spelled out for you and so, I mean, I love all the genre elements. I love the storytelling, but uh, almost more than anything, I just, I love his artwork. His artwork is so good. And um, his use of color is, is again, very much like to my own kind of like liking. And um, yeah, I think it's just a great co- collaboration and it's a great like self-contained comic book. Like you can just hand somebody this, this book and they will get a complete experience and they don't need to know anything before they read it. They don't need to know anything after, um, which is something again, that I, I'm kind of always have an eye towards because, you know, I, uh, just for my own selfish reasons, most of the people that I know don't read comic books. And so it's, it's hard to recommend people things when you know that it, you know, it's like, well, I can't just recommend this. I have to explain like a multi decades worth of context for them to understand what they're about to read. You know, I like, I love, you know, what I love. Um, I was just looking at my bookshelf the other day. I was packing things in like kingdom come, uh, the Mark Wade, like Alex Ross book. I was like, this is such a good graphic novel, but like, you cannot just pick that up as a random person and enjoy it the way that I can, because you, you mm-hmm. kind of need to know the the history of the characters. That's kind of the the blessing and the curse of comic books is if you're really into comics, it's really rewarding because of that kind of deep history. But, you know, I guess I always have an eye towards like people that don't know comics and, and I, I, I kind of favor things that are, are more inviting uh, on the more inviting end of the spectrum, I guess. 
Nice. And speaking of which, our next question is, what comic would you recommend to a friend who's never read comics? Sure. Well, uh, so the book I selected for this is called Chasing the Bird by Dave Chisholm. Uh, I happen to know Dave. Um, we kind of became friends over the past couple of years here. And so I, you know, I'm slightly biased because I know him as a person and, uh, you know, I, I just love him as, as a human being. Um, but uh, it just so happens that he's also a genius when it comes to uh, not just comic books, but a genius when it comes to kind of, he thinks on a really deep level about like the intentionality behind what he's doing. Um, a great, so part of, part of the appeal of chasing the bird, I think to somebody who's never read, read comics is that each chapter is kind of done in a different style as it pertains to the narrator telling that part of the story. So it, the, the book is about the um, jazz musician, Charlie Parker. And each chapter is uh, from the point of view of somebody in his life that knew him and kind of telling like, um, you know, telling about this experience of being with him. And so each part is kind of different. And uh, for instance, there's one chapter that's kind of done uh, entirely in this kind of like noir style. And, uh, you know, for one, it, it's very evocative of like Darwin Cook's work on his like Parker books, mm. which, you know, on, uh, just right away, it's already clever. It's like, okay, Parker and then Charlie Parker. Okay. You get like, maybe that's what he was doing. But when you look, so in the back of the book, there's, um, he has like kind of notations for each chapter of like his, his research and then like where he kind of adjusted things in the story for, for like narrative purposes and he kind of explains that in that chapter, his his primary source material is this some memoir that I guess is like, you know, uh, controversial in in kind of the historian space as, as it relates to Charlie Parker. So he decided like, well, instead of um, ignoring that, he would actually lean into the more fabulous kind of unknown quality of the story and, and cat. And that's why he decided to cast it in this noir kind of landscape. And he does that not just in this book, but in like his, in his other work too, is like he, there's always a reason why he is drawing something the way that he's drawing it. It's never, I, one thing I can't stand is when people just kind of like, kind of show off for the sake of showing off and like, kind of like, look at all my tricks um, and Dave does the complete opposite of that, where it's like, he can do all the tricks, but he, he only uses them when they are the most effective trick. And he knows when you don't need a trick, uh, mm. or, or when you don't need to change your style or, or be that versatile and you can just do something maybe a little more conventionally. So, um, yeah. all those things, you know, uh, to say, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a great read. It's great. It's again, it's just like, it's very, um, uh, inviting, uh, for new readers. It's an interesting time period, interesting figure. And yeah, I mean, just the artwork in general is just, um, really beautiful. So. Yeah. And the, the, the colors are fantastic, aren't they? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. For, yeah. And I mean, um, yeah. And there's just, I mean, talk about there's just sequences and like images in it that are just like 
um, you know, to me, like monumental. You uh, just like stops you in your tracks and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And like, um, there's a particular, there's a, 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 a sequence at the very end of the book, again, with no words, and it's all d- done with images. That is like just breathtaking, you know? And um, yeah, I, I think that um, if anyone hasn't, hasn't checked that out or read it, like again, I mean, just like all of these, but I, I would definitely, I would highly recommend. Nice. Now we've come on to our final question in regards to comics. And that is if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse, which would it be? Yeah. So, uh, my choice for this was pretty straightforward. Um, I picked Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, the Hayao Miyazaki, uh, manga. Um, I mean, beyond the fact that it's, it's long. And so it would, it would last you a long time. (laughs) Um, I think that, uh, if anything from our current civilization deserves to transition into the next civilization after the apocalypse, it is, uh, Miyazaki. Uh, he, he, I, I, uh, I've recently decided that, you know, I, I have basically three guiding lights in my life in terms of like creative people that I kind of aspire towards. And so one is, is Ursula K. Le Guin, the science fiction writer. Uh, the other is Ringo Starr, drummer from the Beatles. And then Miyazaki is third. Um, and the reason is, is, you know, it's just like Miyazaki is, is a genius. And, uh, I, you know, I, I feel like Nausicaa is a book that you could just easily read, reread, lose yourself in. It's so, there's so much detail to it. It's also about like a hero in an apocalypse. Um, and so, you know, I'd probably be instructive towards, um, existing in one. And, uh, yeah, I just say, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine life without Miyazaki. So if I, if I had to only one comic book, it had to be something, um, attached to him, I think. Nice. That's fantastic. And yeah, that's, that's one that I hadn't come across myself before. Um, and it definitely looks kind of right up my street. So I'm definitely going to check that one out as well. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Excellent. Uh, now, um, on to our very final question and that is what weapon tool or useful item would you like to take with you as well? So, yeah, I, I think, uh, what the thing that I would, I would have to take into my, into my, uh, you know, farm farmland existence after the apocalypse would be a a piano um i can't play the piano but i want i've wanted to learn how to play the piano for a really long time so i assuming i would have ample time to do that and um i also you know i you'd have to have as as well as miyazaki has to exist into the next uh civilization uh, music also is something that I would have to have with me. So, uh, you know, even if I couldn't play, um, super well, having a piano nearby that I could at least practice and, and hopefully one day get good enough just to play a few kind of simple songs, uh, would be enough to get me through, uh, through the apocalypse. Nice man. A hundred percent. And we'll, we'll absolutely need that. And, uh, whilst you're learning, you know, you're going to be on a farm, so you won't have any neighbors nearby. 
Um, <laughs> so yeah, exactly. You, you won't wind up too many people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably for the best. Yeah, until you can make it to the concert hall, and then you'll be all good. <laughs> of course, yeah. 100%. Well, Rick Quinn, thank you so much for sharing your comics for the apocalypse. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, of course, yeah. Thank you again so much for, for having me on. It was a lot of fun. It's quite all right. And uh, for the listeners, one more time, where can they find you online? Uh, so they can find me online, uh, both on Twitter and Instagram, at Rich Quizzle, Q-U-I-Z-Z-L-E. And uh, my website is apexquin.com and uh, Uncanny Valley Archive one is currently on kickstarter so you can search and find that on there as well and i think that's it perfect and of course those links will all be will all be in the show notes folks so go click through check out rick's work follow him on social media and make sure that you check out his kickstarter and if it's your cup of tea make sure that you back it straight away uh and then apart from that rick um i hope our paths do cross at some point in the future um if you ever come across this way um it'd be great to you know get a coffee um or just catch up at a con or something like that and vice versa i hope <laughs> oh absolutely yeah I, w- I would love to uh yeah one day do one of the one of the conventions over there would be would be awesome and yeah if you're ever if you're ever in the states yeah uh keep me keep me posted Will do. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Rick. Um, have a have a good rest of your day, and um, yeah, I'm sure I'll see you on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, man. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Rick for being on Comics for the Apocalypse. It was an absolute pleasure. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review for us on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use, as not only will it let me know that you liked it, but believe that it helps make other people aware of the show as well. If you'd like to check out Rick's work or follow him on social media, those links are in the show notes along with all our own links to the various areas of the internet. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, be sure to visit Comic Scene's website at comicscene.org for comic news, the comic club, and other fun sequential art stuff. And finally, as long as the apocalypse doesn't come to pass in the next week, I'll see you next Monday. Bye for now.